or historians who are going to teach us some fun and entertaining facts about the history of medicine. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. We talk a lot about side gigs on this show. So if your side gig or even your main gig is a medical technology product that you want to pitch, or you're even in the early stages of product development, you could benefit from consulting with Charm Economics. They use government data, peer-reviewed journals, and trade literature to support and enhance your business model at all stages. Whether an early stage pitch deck creation, return on investment modeling, or peer-reviewed article production, they can help. See how Charm Economics can transform your business development today so you can focus on building your product, growing your network, and implementing your vision. Check them out at charmeconomics.com. Dr. Max Nains and Dr. Mike Berger, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> well, hello. So just to briefly introduce you, Max is formerly of Waukesha Memorial Hospital, an emergency medicine physician. He's currently transitioning into palliative care. And Mike is still at Waukesha as an emergency medicine physician. And you are two out of three of the illustrious hosts of the Poor Historian podcast. I love the double entendre title that like mostly only physicians, I guess, yeah. would get poor historian. And where you talk about just the medical, the funny, interesting, dark past of medical history. And uh, I love it. So tell us a little about how you guys started and how you get into that. Sure. So alcohol, kind of. <laughs> to so what happened was Aaron, who wasn't able to join us tonight, and I, we both have humanities backgrounds. We both we had English degrees. And one night, many years ago now, he we got together and he said, I wanted a, he wanted a creative project. And I said, well, that's great. I would like one too. I'm a podcast fanatic we should do a podcast and Aaron had never listened to one. I think, I think either he hadn't or maybe once we went out to a nice area bar, had a couple of cocktails and basically generated the first idea for the poor historians podcast. And uh, somewhere along the line, Mike, how did you yeah. get picked up? I don't remember no, exactly. You guys how you were found talking about it. about it in the arena. I was like, what are you guys doing? Oh, doing that's podcast? Right. I was like, all right, I'm in. I don't think either one of you wanted me in. <laughs> <laughs> no, you weren't invited. I invited myself. Yeah. <laughs> I elbowed you, sidled your way in. Yeah. Well, he was like, I can do music. I was like, all right, fine. But no, we've all been friends well before the podcast. We all worked with the same group. It sort of was like, okay, yeah, let's see how it goes. And it started out as a way for us to take stories in medicine. And we really wanted to aim at bringing them to a wider audience. And talking about history was just kind of natural for all three of us. We all had an interest in it. And we also wanted to do it in kind of a humorous way, which is always a difficult line to walk. Because as you said, I think in the intro, medical history has a lot of very dark corners. and we we must have I think we did what Mike like four or five pilots to lot. come up with a general approach because we wanted to make sure we were respectful in our humor but that people could still laugh along because I think most folks in medicine especially maybe it's an emergency thing but I doubt it just specific to us we get through with gallows humor and we get through with those things with hopefully a good understanding of the roots of where we all came from I did a podcast episode a long time ago with Stickers, who was one of the founders, the founder of The Onion, oh, and how wow. I got him on the show. I have no <gasps> idea. And so they did a 9-11 edition of The Onion two weeks after 9-11. Mm -hmm. And so I asked him, like, how do you do that? Because, right, we have to tread this line of the gallows humor, but also being respectful. He's like, it's easy. The rule is, the role of humor is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And so if you're punching up, you're safe. If you're punching yeah, down, you punch you're down. not. 
Never make fun of the patient. You can make fun of circumstances. You can make fun of those in power. But as long as you're punching up, you're safe. So I, I think that's a good rule because I try to make jokes in the office all the time. And it also, it helps the patients learn. They're mm -hmm. a little more disarmed. They're more likely, like if you're all, your sympathetic nervous system is pounding, which is probably like all of your patients in the emergency department. Like it's hard to listen. It's hard to pay attention. It's hard to learn. It's hard to remember. But if you can get them to relax a little with humor, then they become a lot more receptive. Yeah, we, both of those work pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you actually pointed out something. I like that I never know how much of our audience gets our title because the title, when we say poor historians, every physician knows what we're talking about. But if you listen to the show and you know what a poor historian is, the hope is that you get that the joke is exactly as you said, we're punching at ourselves and we are never punching at the patient. We're never punching at the person. We are the poor historians and that's why we're taking it tongue in cheek. I think it's nice if that lands the way that we hoped it would. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, often refer to patient as being a poor historian, right? We're like, oh, they can't recall the events. But ultimately, we're the historians. We're the ones who are documenting it. They're the ones who experienced it. And we're the ones died. So we're the historian. It's us. So yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Okay. So this podcast, the tagline is everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. So like useful stuff. So just we're going to go astray from that today because, you know, a lot of this stuff is not necessarily stuff that should be taking up bandwidth <laughs> of people who are like studying for their boards or whatever. But I do want to start with stuff that falls in there. Like, is there anything that you've covered on your show that you're like, holy cow, this should be part of a medical school curriculum. This is an important part of our history that I think all doctors should be aware of. It's a good question. I would say topics wise, I don't have a concise list, but I think themes wise in it, there, there's definitely some items that we see come up over and over again. And I mean, one thing is just, and I don't know how to instill this into a medical school curriculum, but making students aware of the fact that medicine has been prone to the same mistakes over and over again for a variety of reasons, but a lot of them can boil down to hubris and um, blind dedication to tradition. There's so many examples of physicians in history and physicians in modern times doing the same things that they were taught because they were taught and relying on that as the evidence for why we should be doing those things. But certainly in a lot of the cases that we've come across and a lot of the stories that we tell, we find example after example of times when we should have listened to the people who are raising new concerns or listening to people who were trying to inject new ideas into medicine. And that also should be met with skepticism. But like, you know, for instance, bringing up you know, one of my favorite stories is Joseph Lister, the Victorian surgeon who broke down the wall between germ theory and surgical practice. And in a time when he was one of the first to basically do antiseptic procedures using carbolic acid, he took the principles that Louis Pasteur came up with, like germs are a thing and you know, they are found in tissues and stuff like that. He took that concept and said, you know, I'm a surgeon, I'm a scientist. I think that these small bits of, of what ended up being bacteria, as we find them in wounds, probably have something to do with these wounds turning gangrenous and all these legs falling off and all these awful things that happened super commonplace in a Victorian surgery suite. He took that and said, you know, I think if we get rid of these little things, I think things will get better. Here's my reasoning for it. And then he started demonstrating it through through experimentation and starting with low concentrate or high concentrations of carbolic acid and kind of found it. And so then he took the scientific principle, applied it to surgery, and completely revolutionized it. But 
was met with nothing but disdain for so many years because he was taking all these giants of the surgical world and saying, we're doing it wrong. Here's why I think we're doing it wrong. Here's my evidence, which was actually pretty darn good evidence for the time. And he was met with nothing but roadblocks, derision. He was drawn and quartered through the medical journals of the time. And this is a mistake that you see made so many times over when somebody takes the normal practice that we're all used to, examines it, and then is ignored. You know, not every person who has a new idea, you know, has the right idea, but there was there are plenty of times that we see that good evidence and an examination of our prior t- traditions should probably prompt better better focus and hopefully a change in the way that we just do things in medicine. But don't you find that there are a lot of people out there who are just contrarians for the sake of being contrarians and they're not they're using poor evidence and painting themselves as a Joseph Lister when realize, really they're like a quack, right? I feel like that's what's online all the time is they paint themselves as the victim. Like I do have a small shred of this cohort study that shows that undermines your argument with all of your evidence and nobody's listening to me and I'm a victim. Yeah, of course. I, you know, the in the case of somebody like Lister, this was a gentleman who built up a a whole body of work evidence kept. I mean, he had Excel spreadsheets. We would have graphs from the time because he really, I don't know, he might have done graphs by hand, but he really had a rigid body of evidence. Because you're absolutely right. Somebody who's like, I think this medicine does this. You're like, all right, great, whatever. We don't necessarily listen to them because they are a contrarian, but. If somebody is a contrarian with a good body of evidence that is then peer-reviewed, that's somebody we should probably listen to. And a lot of the cases we're talking about in our show, a lot of these historical cases are people that, you know, for instance, like Galen, the great physician, almost As all of- vein of. With that, yep. He's got his vein. He's got the Galia, you know, the named at least in, in honor. Galen was kind of it in medical history, you know, as far as teaching of how the body worked. He never dissected a human being. Some stuff on apes. There was no scientific method to his principles. The Galenic way of doing medicine, including the four humors, your different kinds of bile. You know, nowadays we just have like your one kind, the unpleasant kind of bile. But, you know, back then you had four different ones. And the thing was, you know, up God, until... Things have gotten simpler. Yeah, we got rid right? of 75% yeah, of, of our It's so piles. complicated. <laughs> exactly. It must have been so hard to practice medicine back then with all that different types of bile. Absolutely. We just have one. And well, when people were questioning his principles, it was, you can't because it's Galen. Uh, He's the man. And so it took so long for people to start doing studies on like, you know, circulation and how the heart works to say, you know, I don't know about this, you know, bile coming from the livers pumping blood kind of stuff. I don't know about this. And then, you know, so it took a lot of overcoming of that tradition and a lot of new empiric studying to do so. And it's just kind of another example I always think about with people. We still talk about Galen and I mean, interesting guy, don't get me wrong, but didn't really know up from down when it came to medicine, as it turns out. I think what you're talking about is the difference between an ideologue and a scientist. So a scientist in the face of evidence is going to be able to change their perspective. Like that's what science is. Hopefully, It's yes. the ability to evolve and change what you believe based on new evidence. And an ideologue is someone who just is going to toe the party line because that's what they believe and they'll continue to find evidence to support what they believe and ignore everything else. So I think what you're saying is we're physicians, be scientists, 
like strong convictions loosely held. I've heard that before. I don't know who said it, but you know, where you're able to change those convictions based on new evidence. I think another vein there too, another fun thing to at least, whether you learn or appreciate it from medical school is the fact that a lot of medical advances came from failing correctly. <laughs> Some Sometimes things when they went wrong were the reasons we learned how to do certain things. And so like one, I got one story, We this episode will maybe out by the time that this present episode recording is out, but we had a nice conversation with a physician and author named Dr. Andrew Lamb, and we discussed a chapter out of his book that had to do with the history of like heart disease and cardiac, how we got to the point where we are in modern times, where you can do heart transplants, do cardiac catheterizations. And he, one of the stories he shared was from a Cleveland Clinic, 1958, a Dr. Mason Sonis, who at the time theorized that, you know what, I think if we can use radio-opaque dye, and we can squirt it in the aorta by putting a catheter up through the artery. All of that had really not totally been done. He said, you know, I think we could probably look at the coronary arteries and figure out if there's a problem. And so he, did, he, he said, I'm just going to do it. And he went to shoot an aortogram. They put the dye in on a who? power. What's that? It, in who? Patient zero. Uh, I was like, yeah. sure. Yeah, patient, <laughs> patient zero. So they g- no get it IRB. up to the, yeah. yep, they, an oh, IRB wait, yeah. be damned. The they story get this does get up. dark with all the yep. dead bodies. Yeah. What's it? Oh, that? well, that's the, you're thinking yeah, of the mitral valve the stuff. Yeah, no, oh, you're thinking okay, the mitral yeah, yeah. valve guys. Those are, that's different. But he gets this catheter up there and, and basically starts this power injector now, they, they were worried about a couple of different things. If you inject dye, one thing being if you put a catheter in the coronary artery, do you, does it spasm or block off and there, then now you got a problem? Or if you inject dye, which is not blood, you know, is you, are you going to starve that area of the heart of oxygen and all that stuff? So he didn't know. And although it wasn't really his purpose to try to inject a coronary artery, they shoot the power injector. It starts wiggling the tip of the catheter like, uh, like a fire hose which goes straight into the right coronary artery and blasts it with a ton of dye. Basically, the worst-case scenario they could think of, the guy on the table apparently arrests, he goes into asystole. This cardiac surgeon basically grabs a scalpel. He's about to open the guy's chest to try to internally defibrillate him. That was the style at the time. And tells the guy like who's like falling out of consciousness, is, you know, the heart's not going. He says, cough, you know, because he's hoping that it basically it'll like just do something, change the pressure, change the blood flow in the arteries, etc. Sure enough, the guy's heart restarts right as this guy's about to put the scalpel to the chest. And uh, the patient survives. And so this is one of those moments where you learned a couple of things. <laughs> Number one, you can inject a lot of dye into a coronary artery and the person will survive, although it was pretty close call there. This Dr. Sonis basically takes this episode that, you know, I can almost hear the puckering of a sphincter from across the room. You know, I can only imagine what that was like. And he's just like, Awesome. It kind of worked. Let's go with this. And, you know, let's not do exactly what I did, but let's change this. And there you go. Now we can do angiography. It probably wasn't asystole either, honestly. If it got better when he coughed. That's yeah, just yeah. what the thing said. Yeah, the lead but... just fell off. <laughs> well, it's 19... It could have been a precordial thump. Maybe maybe he says cough, but he really didn't want to write, I punched my patient in the chest. I've done that once successfully. The good yeah. old days. Yeah. A precordial thought? I missed one. I paused in my attending in residency, came over the top of me, like off the top ropes and hit this guy in the chest and his heart started again. I was like, I am not ever oh. going to miss this opportunity again. A lady arrested in front of me and thump. It wasn't that hard. And yeah. It, oh man, that's got to yeah, be so cool. satisfying. I still have the tracing someplace. <laughs> yeah. People think that like 
all of medicine is yeah. like that. Right. That like you're just going from room to room, giving high fives and precordial thumps. And that's like that's your life. Yeah. People are always like, you know, tell us interesting story. I was like, I don't know. You know, th do they want to hear this stuff? You know, if there's ER docs listening, everybody wants to hear about what people put in their butts. But like they don't want to hear the actual interesting <laughs> things from us, like those interpersonal things, like the sad stories. The They just want the butt stuff. <laughs> very true people put that on a shirt people want the butt stuff uh, that shirt exists somewhere i'm sure it's like when i was a when i was a resident my two best friends were a neurosurgeon and a plastic surgeon and i'm the otolaryngologist which nobody knows what the heck that I was is like, what does so that do again yeah so the three of us are single guys going to bars and you know, we'd get these, and the plastic surgeon would always get asked the same question by girls that we were talking to. And one of them, and that question was always, what is your most common surgery? And he would always answer, wound debridements. <laughs> that's not sexy. <laughs> yeah. That's not, not what they were hoping for, not what they were expecting, but that's what they got. Wound debridement. Yep. And it's true. That's what, that's like the foundation of plastic surgery is like wound mm -hmm. management. Okay, so is there anything that you've heard physicians get wrong about our history, the history of physicians, that you want to correct? Well, yeah, something like I, got I don't an know, idea. maybe when we talked to Brian Elliott about the Hippocratic Oath, how it's changed over the years and just the, the pact that we signed with medicine and how it, it was a little flawed, like the way that we recite the oath isn't. It's not the oath of Hippocrates, and I don't. Well, it was from yeah, Doctor like Lasagna. More like Pythagoras. <laughs> yeah, right. That's the yeah, yeah. And you, I saw that you had Doctor. I actually on your had. Show. That's how yeah. I found you guys. Actually, oh, no kidding. I had, yeah, I had Brian Elliott on the show, and I was doing my, you know, listening to his past episodes. I found you guys, and I was like, oh my god, I have to get these guys on the show. This is awesome. So yeah, so we we had Brian, and we talked about the Hippocratic Oath, and my favorite was the uh, the goat testicle oh, yeah. transplant that was his we call his, him Dr. Hi goat the balls. highlight the goat testicle transplantation which is you know we've just something else i want to cover what are the, some of those embarrassing parts of our the history of our profession but uh, max you were going to say something that that you wanted to share about you know honestly mike that was exactly the example i thought of i think the other way i would kind of put it is that you know we everybody if you ask an average person you ask a physician what you know what is the hippocratic oath or, you know, how does it start? Everybody says, first, do no harm. It's not in there. It's not in there at all. It's it. The actual Hippocratic Oath is basically a series of callings to Greek gods and goddesses to do X, Y, and Z. And it has a bunch of uh, other kind of things like, you know, don't prescribe abortifacients, you know, it, because the cult who likely wrote the Hippocratic Oath in Hippocrates' name, that just wasn't a thing they were into. And so it is, if you actually read the true Hippocratic Oath, it is complete anachronism compared to what we do today. And so and it's, it's funny. Paying your instructors. Yep. It's, oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Don't forget. Portion of it. I mean, we paid a lot of money to be instructed, but yeah. Yes. Pay your instructors in the hypocrite, which would be great. would be hilarious if that was in our current, like, <laughs> I will go into hundreds of thousands of debt in order to learn mm -hmm. my craft. Sure. Like, that needs to be yeah, in, the, in the current It should be modernized. Yeah. A lot of urologic <laughs> stuff in there, too. It's like all they did. Yeah. A lot of urologic stuff. Mm -hmm. Kidney stones, man, bladder yeah. stones. They were a big deal back then. Yeah. I mean, it's still yeah, a big yeah. deal, but. I will but I, not yeah, cut that's what for it, yeah. stone. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yep. 
And well, and I think too, to the point, like maybe, I don't know if I would phrase it like things that we don't get correct, but I think things that sort of get pushed aside a little bit and I think need to be brought out a little more. One thing is how much we should give credit to cocaine. There's a lot. There are so many stories in medicine that like start with cocaine and like you know we have we did an episode on Halstead the founder of what we think of as modern residency and I mean you know working the hours that one works in residency it helps to maybe know although they don't really discuss this much in medical school is that the guy who started that whole system was had a significant cocaine habit and so I would imagine 28 hour shifts are a lot easier when you're dropping cocaine into your eyeballs but for mortal humans not doing that should not be doing that it's, it's, you know, might take a little bit of a rethink. And there's also like the other one, I can't remember if this is your episode, Mike, but August Carl Gustav Beer, like beer block guy, like in the 1880s, he and his buddy, his colleague are like, you know what? I think we can use cocaine for anesthesia. And they do like literally a spinal anesthesia. So the Dr. Beer puts a spinal needle into his friend's, you know, spinal column and he put squirts cocaine in his spine and uh, you know the fluid surrounding and he does basically the first spinal anesthesia and his buddy you know goes completely numb below uh, the level of the nipples specifically they did say that and then you have two two young physicians just being college bros because he's like all right well if you can't oh, yeah. feel anything let's see how far this goes and so like literally it's like it starts out with like can you feel me tickling your feet and then no can you feel me well how about if i put a scalpel in your thigh nope didn't feel that like all right i'm gonna start hitting you with a hammer do you feel that nope it's good it is it is like i i don't remember off the top of my head if alcohol was involved as well but in my it, head it, it, it probably was. was no it sounds like the people who discovered gout like which specific crystals and I, you don't treat gout, so I don't remember this, but I remember the story where they actually injected their own big toes and were writhing on the ground in agony when they discovered <laughs> that they were correct. And this was, in fact, what was the cause Care? of yep. gout? Yeah, there was a lot. Actually, that's a lot in our medical history. It's experimenting here. Mm -hmm. yeah, Let that, me inject this into you and mm -hmm. then you can inject this into me. And if you and do we'll it on yourself, then it's yeah. not as bad as if you're, you know... I think there's, the if you are the physician and you want to do it on, you want to do this experiment on yourself and have your buddy do the first spinal anesthesia on you, you probably assume and know all the risks. And I think that is as good as informed consent, is it not? Yeah, they don't have to sign something. They get it. They? <laughs> They're your lab partner. They're, yeah. The lawyers listening might not agree, but I think we all understand that. They're as informed as informed can be. Yeah. I think so. I think so. All right, so so we also have our fair share of of quackery in our history, mm. right? Like modern medicine has not always been this iterative process founded in science. It was like a lot of Hail Marys that were just completely wrong. Hail Mary being the past, not the not a religious this was not a religious oh, illusion. Sure. So is there any interesting goat testicle implantation notwithstanding? Any other interesting quackery that you guys have encountered in your podcast? Yeah, there's yeah. a lot. And it's hard because yeah. when you're looking back at this, it's kind of like who was a quack or who just believed in themselves, you know? And you can kind of sometimes tease it yeah, out fair. after the fact. Sometimes you can't. The goat balls guy, I don't know that, I don't know that he thought he was a quack. I, he, well, actually, no. Looking at that story, he's a yeah. quack. Yeah, he tried. <laughs> he so was yeah. just making money. <laughs> he was, okay, so... 
No, but you're to your point, the difference between the two, someone who was like, I am genuinely doing the right thing for humanity versus someone who's profiting off of someone else's illness. So like a snake oil salesman. No, I think that's an excellent point to make the distinction between the two. So actually, let's look, let's let me ask the question a little more respectfully then. So what are some of the things that we've tried that we thought would genuinely help people, but using our retrospective scope and our knowledge of current medicine, in the end, seems kind of ridiculous. I think it's everything we've we covered, honestly. But yeah, yeah really. <laughs> it's the whole See, podcast. I'm going to say one of the first things that jumps to mind is eating dead people is one of those things that was way more popular than people think over a long period of time, especially in a lot of medieval up to... Really, I think, I mean, really like the 19th century. So we covered some of this in an episode on corpse medicine, which was encompasses a lot of different things. So it's not a discrete field, but there's kind of a longstanding tradition of, and yes, definitely physicians of the time recommending this, but like eating parts of corpses to help with different medical maladies. So for instance, you got a headache and you might take a skull of somebody and then grind it up, mix it with a little bit of alcohol and take that. And that would have been a treatment for the for headaches. I believe that was 17th, kind of 18th century Europe. And I believe even Europe and I want to say it was recommended for one of the kings of England. I just can't remember which one. There was drinking cups of blood from executions because you get you know bigger. And actually, specifically for you want the guy to be really distressed in in whatnot who's being executed because then the blood is more full of vigor. And so you would have people of the peasantry basically collecting cups of blood to take home as a medicinal. And I spoiler alert, it doesn't work. <laughs> it's gross, but it's they you know they were trying. And then I said you know the other thing is eating literally dead bodies, there, there is a reason that mummies became so scarce. And that is because it was felt that they had medicinal value. And so people would hold, especially in like Victorian England, I believe, in, 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 around that time, they would hold parties where mummies were unwrapped. And then... Oh, so they, would, they were grave robbers. Oh, yeah. They well, they would, would procure, yep, they would procure Egyptian mummies. Egypt, and then yep. and then bring them on a boat and... Grind them wow, up. Grind them up and eat them. Yep. Yeah. Basically, and, and, <laughs> you know... So, uh, so there's that, that, and again, I, you know, not, I don't really have a lot of evidence that this was quackery per se. It was more or less this, you know, Hey, I have a headache. I'm going to grind up and eat a skull and, you know, we mix it with alcohol. I'm sure you feel a little different after that, you know, skull, head, headache. I can kind of see where those dots got connected, but it's one of those things I did not realize we had such a rich history of doing in medicine. I have trouble getting my kids to take augmentin, <laughs> the liquid mm. augmentin, because it's just disgusting. I've, you know, you smell it and you're like, oh, how do I ever prescribe this? I can't imagine being like, have this mummified or bits of like, oh, to, yeah. yeah. How did I'm you sure ever it's get all in the preparation. I mean, I, you know, yeah. if you open up a package and there's like dried bits of flesh and little bits of hair, it's probably going to be less appetizing to take. But yeah, put it into it's a nice solution. Mix it up. Yeah. A little alcohol. Yeah. An elixir. <laughs> an elixir. Yeah. It's all how you think about it. Make it into a salve. They did, yeah. Let's say, what other good <laughs> examples there? I mean, I think, like, not, we won't dive too dark, but like, lobotomies was, uh, that was one of those episodes where you knew it was bad going in because you just kind of has that connotation modern wise. But this was something that literally was given a Nobel Prize for its ability to, quote, help people. And, you know, surgery, where as it was referred to as psychosurgery, you know, basically doing surgery to help a men mental illness, you know, this became such a, 
common, horrifically practiced procedure where it's you know, literally an ice pick through the orbit. And the idea being that you would direct it up and into the middle of the brain, wiggle it back and forth, which I can't remember the exact the phrasing that they used in that we found. But yeah, I mean, you got to fan it like this. Yes, fan. Here we like go. <laughs> right. And basically, you're scrambling the front part of the brain, and they observe, well, patients are better. And it's like, well, you... Oh, for those who couldn't see what Mike's finger was doing, the angles were <laughs> orthogonal to each other, just in case you're wondering. I know you're wearing orthogonals in your shoes nowadays. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, this was one of those things where, I mean, a Nobel Prize was awarded for it because, yeah, they said, well, it's helping. It's like, well, you take somebody who has profound mental illness, and then you do a horrible procedure on them and they are yeah they're now reparably they're damaged. not going to bother like you anymore. straight they're right. not going to like right exactly yeah. and you know and it when you look back on it i mean it's it fell fortunately out of favor but man did it take way too long because there really wasn't a lot of science behind this and it's just one of those things that's just like yikes this was a i knew it was there but until we actually dove into it i was like this is bad this is rough so before we close i want to end on a high note that was like, a high note. That wasn't a high note. That was some, one of the morbid, more morbid parts of our history. What's something inspiring from our past? Right? Like you told the story of Lister, who discovered this and then against all odds, against the entire establishment, really made hand washing and the you know germ theory became part of modern medicine. And so- What's another inspiring story that you can use to uplift our audience in these dark times? I have, I think I have one, Mike. You got one well, off the top of your head, too? Yeah, I mean, yeah, Lister would be one. Florence Nightingale, maybe. You know, another, like, yeah. you know, somebody that really created this profession out of nothing. But yeah, I don't know who you're thinking. I was actually going to go, we, it was a somewhat recent episode, but we talked about the Edinburgh Seven who were seven women who in the kind of late 19th century Scotland decided, hey, we want to go to medical school. And they went to the University of Edinburgh and they were kind of headed by this one woman who sounded very incredible. Her name was Sophia Jex Blake. And she just like would not take no for an answer. And she was met with every single Every, everything they could put in her way to say, you really, you can't be a doctor. Because at the time, the belief was there are spheres of medicine. Like, you know, folks like Florence Nightingale really did elevate nursing to a pretty, pretty incredible state. And it really made it more of a legitimized profession back in the day. But that was also believed to be a woman's sphere. And so to cross, you know, cross that barrier to become a physician was sort of considered a masculine sphere. And so they were met with all this derision. I mean, they were initially denied acceptance. They had to petition so many people to at least allow them to be admitted. They were admitted, but they had to pay separate and higher tuition, mind you. They couldn't sit in the regular classes. They couldn't, you, they couldn't study with the male participants, all these things. And it even culminates in a riot. There's a literal riot because they show up for one of their first exams and they are met with a column of angry townspeople and like male medical students. And they are, they try to disallow them to take the tests, but they persist. They get into the building, they take the tests, and like a few of them literally outperform the men despite all those things. And the end of that story doesn't wrap up super neatly in terms of they don't all immediately graduate, you know, after going through everything. They still have more hardship. But when you actually read that story, the reason I think it's an up note is that. 
people like Sophia Jax Blake, when they go through all of that and they go through all that hardship, they actually made the biggest push to allow women to become physicians from that point forward. And there are many barriers yet to still kind of come down. But this was like a story where everything got thrown in her way. She persisted and she is remembered now incredibly for you know what she did. And like the a lot of the people who stood in her way are, are now kind of given their proper place in history where they were remembered as people who were anti-progressive. And, and you know, it, this is one of those stories that when you look at the legacy that she created and there's hospitals named after her, I mean, there's all these cool things. That's I think a, that's one of those bright spots. Yeah. To quote Mitch McConnell, <laughs> nevertheless, she persisted. <laughs> I thought you were going to pause for a minute thrown. there. Yeah. <laughs> oh. His controller died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nevertheless, you said she persisted. That made me think. Nevertheless, she persisted, right? About about Liz Warren, Senator Warren. Yep. So, yeah, that's a great that's a great story. I love it. And you, you referred to them as what? The what seven? The Edinburgh Seven. Yeah, Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Scotland. Edinburgh Seven. And uh, that was one of those, if anybody does listen to our show or will, uh, we do a, extremely professional voice acting. And that was a time when I had to fake a Scottish accent in front of our guest, who is a Scottish author. And uh, she said parts of it were okay. So I think that was a <laughs> ringing endorsement. Nice. Yes, that's as good as, as, good <laughs> she as was, you can get. She was very nice. <laughs> All right, so if people want to take a deep, deeper dive and listen to your podcast, first, the music. I want you to. I want to know where you got the musical intro to your I, podcast, I, which I is remember. super cool. Actually, I don't remember. And then it evolved over time. So it was a little more classical at the beginning and then became more, a little more like yeah. punk. Was that a SoundCloud no, phone mic or? Oh, that's right. And then, yeah, <laughs> oh, I just recorded it. it on GarageBand on the Mac and shot it over to Max. It's awesome. It's awesome. And so where can people find the show? Uh, I was going to say people at work are humming that tune. We are on all the major podcast places, wherever you're listening to podcasts, where we should be on all of them. We also have a website, www.poorhistorianspod.com. We have our, your social media. You'll find us on Instagram and uh, Facebook and threads mostly. That's kind of where most of our stuff is, at Poor Historians Pod. All that stuff's on the website. And uh, in, yeah, I'm sure we are in some other places, but those are the main ones. All right. Fantastic. Dr. Max Neens, Dr. Mike Berger, thanks so much for being on the podcast. And thanks for putting out such yeah, great content awesome. yourselves. Thank you. Likewise. Hey, want to come up with a topic. Come on the show. Find a, what was it? Auto. Photolaryngologist. <laughs> We've got, I mean, there's history there. There's a book called <laughs> Swallow about the history of laryngoscopy and bronchoscopy about Ooh. Chevalier Jackson. Okay. Yeah. That sounds that. like an episode. I'm, read it, though. I'm not okay. going to read well. books. They sit on the shelf. They look pretty. <laughs> yeah. I'd yeah. have to find a podcast about it to go on your show. That sounds like a great show, though. Let me know. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you, this is not a doctor-patient relationship and this is not medical advice or financial advice or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.